Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we find out what Canada can learn from Australia about how to better support our aging population. The two countries face very similar demographic challenges, but have taken different approaches to support. What has worked? What hasn't? We find out. We often think of falling birth rates and a reluctance to have kids as a bit of a modern phenomenon that millennials invented the idea. But the author of a new book called Without Children, The Long History of Not Being a Mother joins me to explain why that isn't the case and why that matters. A battle over the future of policing in the Vancouver suburb of Surrey, B.C. continues as the province is recommending the municipality move ahead with a new municipal police force while the city wants to re-establish an RCMP-led one. Now, it's a reckoning with the Mounties and community policing that is happening right across the country, so the fight in Surrey could actually have impact far outside its borders. But first, the Liquor Control Board of Ontario, or the LCBO as it's known, is going to phase out paper bags, putting new meaning to the term BYOB, so customers will have to bring their own or cough up for a reusable one. It's being done in the name of sustainability. The LCBO is a big mover and shaker. They banned plastic bags 15 years ago, far before many others did. But we look into why it feels like consumers are so often left holding the bag when it comes to these initiatives. There were many things we could have talked about tonight off the top and trying to figure out, what, what, what can we talk about on this Friday? And I kept landing on this one story that I'd read yesterday. Now, keep in mind, I lived in Ontario for quite a while. My mom's still in Ottawa, so I go back quite often. And of course, if you live in Ontario, you're familiar with something called the LCBO, which is the Liquor Control Board of Ontario. It is the prime um, retailer for alcohol in the province. In fact, it's one of the biggest purchasers of alcohol in the world. Now, yesterday, they announced that they're going to phase out paper bags at their retail stores. You know, paper bags, they put, they use them as sleeves for wine bottles so your wine bottles don't collide together. And, you know, and they phased out plastic quite a while ago, so paper became the only option, really, if you didn't bring your own bag. Well, they decided uh, quite suddenly, I think, they announced yesterday, no more paper bags at any of their retail stores. Uh, they say it'll save about 188,000 trees each year. So uh, I get it from an ecological point of view. And it's true that the same organization, the Crown Corporation, uh, got rid of single-use plastic bags like 15 years ago. So they've been kind of ahead of the curve on this for a long time. But it got me thinking about, you know, when you go into a retail organization now, just how few things they'll give you if you don't bring your own bag. And I get that they're trying to encourage customers not to use single-use items like plastic or paper or so on. At the same time, and of course the LCBO says customers are being encouraged to bring use reusable bags or they can purchase them on in the stores, and that's where it starts to rankle me. That's where I start to get a little vexed by the whole thing. Um, because I'm not entirely convinced that these organizations are simply doing this for ecological reasons. You get the sense that they're leaving us, the customer, holding the bag, really, so to speak. Now, listen, there are cardboard boxes. You know, liquor stores always have cardboard boxes that you can use if you want. And uh, there's also an eight-pack carrier that they have. You can put beer in it. Those are no cost. Um it turns out they use about 135 million paper bags per year, and that in doing this, they say they're going to divert some 2,600 tons of waste from landfills. So I get it ecologically. But what, what I find strange about it is that it always seems to happen quite quickly. 
And then customers are forced to kind of scramble for them. And there's always the option to buy a bag. And that's where I start to get a bit, a bit vexed. Uh, why, why phase them out so quickly? Why not set up some kind of system where people would be encouraged to change habits, right? So as a consumer, I think, oh, okay, well, I get it. But really, it always feels like something that was cooked up in the PR department of said organization. It'll look good in their corporate annual report. They can say they've done this. It makes them look um, like they're championing sustainability. But really, at the end of the day, they sell alcohol, right? I mean, this is not, this isn't exactly, in of itself, there are already a few issues here. They raise huge, they make big, huge profits. And now they're getting rid of paper bags. And they're doing it quite quickly. Apparently, they're going to phase them out in a matter of months, right? Now, uh, the LCBO president and CEO said, quote, we took the lead to remove single-use plastic bags from our stores. Now the removal of single-use paper bags is another important step in our efforts to minimize our impact on the environment. I get it. I get it. But really, it always feels like it's consumers that pay the price for this. So there you go. Next time you go to an LCBO, if you don't have your reusable bag, you can buy one, of course. They'll sell one to you, which seems to be a new revenue stream that we don't talk about enough. Um, and, you know, I get it. I get their commitment to sustainability. So we wanted to find out more about this because, honestly, I feel like consumers are getting a bit of a raw deal on this one. I'm not against getting rid of single-use items. I think in the long run, it's a good thing. But it's the way that it's done that starts to be a little annoying, I think, as a consumer myself. So we thought we'd reach out to Lisa Hutchison. She's a retail expert and managing partner at J.C. Williams Group in Toronto, so right part of all of this. And uh, she joins us now. Lisa, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. So what did you make of this news? I mean, LCBO, it's hard to overstate how big a retailer LCBO is, not just in Ontario, but as a worldwide purchaser of alcohol. For sure. I mean, they use 135 million paper bags. So it just sort of speaks to how many transactions that they have. Tell me a bit about this this idea of of phasing out paper bags, because I think a lot of us don't have to remember back too far to being asked whether you wanted paper or plastic, and perhaps you were feeling like you were doing good for the planet by saying, well, I'll take the paper bag. And now those are going too. What do you think is driving this? I actually think it's really just a sustainability focus. You know, we at our firm and when we talk to our clients, really sustainability isn't a trend anymore. It's really table stakes. Every company, every retailer, every small business, every large business has to have a sustainability element to their business. And I think this is just them flexing that element for their business. They announced earlier that they were going to have a partnership with Tree Canada as part of its sustainability, you know, kind of campaign. And so it would be if they're, you know, partnered with Tree Canada cutting down trees and making paper bags is contradictory. So I think that that is probably a big driver. And, you know, when you think about it, you know, the paper bags, they bundle it a little bit easier, but you're still kind of hanging on to making multiple purchases. Maybe I'm speaking a little bit about my habits. You know, they don't have a handle and you still have to hold them underneath. But I think it is a bit controversial because people sort of have their idea around carrying a bag. 
Well, I, I mean, I think what it boils down to, maybe, the, and, I, and I agree with the sustainability part of it. I, I think what it boils down to a bit as a consumer is you look at and think, okay, where, where are they making the sustainability changes? Ah, in a place where they don't have to give away 135 million paper bags for free. That seems to me like a bottom line issue as well. Pass it on to the consumer. Why not? You look like you're doing good work. At the same time, you're saddling your consumer. I mean, the idea of being able to go to a liquor store and not being given any kind of bag unless you pay for it, it strikes me as a bit, as a bit um, eh, it's just it, something's off. I don't think they're suggesting that they are going to try and get the customer to pay for a bag. I think they're trying to get the customer to bring your own bag. And I think as retailers, we need, from a sustainability point of view, we really have to train the customer to be able to do their part from the environment perspective. But we need cues and we need to understand why it's important. So I think passing on the information about why they're cutting it out. It's been kind of quiet, you know, the reason. We're just sort of hearing the the headline that they're banning paper bags. But I think we can use this as an opportunity to really speak to sustainability, as do other retailers. You know, there are things as a customer that we can do to help save the planet. Yeah, I, I just don't think you save the planet by banning paper bags. I mean, it's it's just, again, I think it goes back to this idea that if I were LCBO, I'd look at, well, how can we, you know, labor costs are going up, the price of things is going up, energy is going up. How can we save some money here? And one of the ways is to take away paper, but to take away all those paper bags. I, I From having worked a little bit inside these, I know they're actually not that concerned about sustainability. They aren't. They mm. aren't really that concerned. This is really kind of a bottom line thing, I think. Not well, always. I mean, I don't mind the advertising around it. They certainly coded yesterday's announcement in a lot of good words. But ultimately, Mm. they're taking away something they used to give away for free. And that seems to make business sense to me. I think there's a couple of things that you touched on there. I don't think it's making a huge difference in their bottom line, because these bags are like a penny or less than a penny per bag. So it's a big number, but it's not a big number in the scheme of things. But at the same time, yes, banning them completely, I think they're due to help curb the customer from using as many paper bags versus like outright, we're banning them, you know, try and entice the customer, maybe give them extra loyalty points if they bring, you know, if they bring a reusable bag versus using a paper bag, maybe there's some sort of contribution to the environment if they bring their own bag. And there's things that they could be doing to entice the customer versus sort of this, we're banning them. Oftentimes, I gather paper bags are used in liquor stores to protect the bottles from breaking when they clank against each other. That's part of the that's that part of their part their of service, sure. right? I mean, that's part of their utility. Yes, for sure. And you know, there's probably other kinds of biodegradable sleeves or something that they could be creating. But again, the paper bags are you know they're combustible for people that want to use have a fire or you know be able to light your fireplace or you know there are some uses for for paper bags. So yeah, it's definitely, um, it seems quite harsh that they did. It's just so, you know, when they're gone, they're gone. We're not buying any more paper bags. Yeah, uh, it was abrupt. Now, I understand, you know, obviously when plastic was banned, a lot was made of the fact that paper bags are, are not really any more environmentally friendly. I mean, mm-hmm. clearly there's the issue with plastics, but that the, the amount of energy it takes to produce a paper, that single-use things 
in of themselves, yes. as you were mentioning, should be something we look to do away with in the not too distant future. Maybe it just feels a bit abrupt. Lisa Hutchison is a retail retail expert and managing partner at J.C. Williams Group. We're talking about uh, the Ontario Liquor Board yesterday, the LCBO, one of the biggest purchasers of alcohol in the world. They are a big organization. Um, phasing out paper bags, they're going to do that uh, pretty quickly. Um, and they're going to encourage their customers, obviously, unless you want to carry them by hand, to bring their own bags in and so forth. They were actually one of the first big organizations to ban plastic bags. 15 years ago. So they're always a bit ahead of the curve on these things. I guess the interesting question now will be how many other retailers are, are out there watching LCBO thinking, we're going to do the same thing. That's next. Lisa, other retailers must look at this and think, well, if the LCBO is going to do this, um, maybe we should look at doing the same thing. Or is that is that not true? I think retailers are looking at that. I think they're looking at it from a sustainability. And I think there's certain industries or certain sectors that use bags more than others. As you mentioned, I am in Toronto and, you know, Toronto, the majority of fashion stores do not offer a plastic bag, um, but they will offer you, you know, a, a reusable bag. And, you know, these are opportunities for encouraging the customer to reuse the bag. And it gives the retailer an opportunity to market themselves and use these bags. They're, we're starting to see it. I think the um, sort of grocery and some of those other purchases that you maybe are unplanned and you didn't think to bring a reusable bag with you, that as a consumer, we have to start thinking about um planning our trips in terms of our shopping and maybe having those bags on us to be able to be able to use them. It strikes me that, I mean, there's been lots of research on how um, on how many reusable bags aren't particularly environmentally friendly either, and if you, especially mm-hmm. if you don't use them a lot. I think it's a research. I mean, there's a lot of research out there, but I think it was 130 times you have to use a reusable bag to make it worth a plastic bag. This was talked to, or at least to equate the energy of a plastic bag. I, I guess what it boils down to, though, is I think as consumers sometimes, and forgive the terrible pun, we feel like we're left holding the bag on these things. <laughs> that is not the terrible part. That's a good pun. I think, you know, I think everybody on the planet has a responsibility to be able to be starting to think about how they can contribute back to the sustainability element. Sure. And I, I'm, I'm an urbanite and I live downtown and I work downtown and I am one of those people that carries bags in a backpack and, you know, I'm not often caught without bags and I'm quite conscious of bringing my bags with me because when I grocery shop and so on, because I don't want to have these all these extra bags. And I have some great brands that I use their reusable bags, not just the grocers. And so I do think that there are ways around it. And there are ways that we can really embrace using those reusable bags. And I know everybody has lots of them. But again, it's we have lots of them because we forget to bring our other our other reusable bags with us on shopping trips. Yeah, I guess it boils down a bit to the customer experience. I mean, I I, I guess others we others out there should should brace themselves for paper bags disappearing from retailers relatively soon as well. If something someone like the LCBO sees it as a doable move. Mm-hmm. And I know I think that's very true. That's going to happen. And I think municipalities, if they are offering um, a paper bag or a plastic bag. I think it's actually in Vancouver. They're making the retailer charge the consumer 25 cents to yeah, change. They, the, they got rid of them. The, they got rid of the reusable oh, oh. cup. They had to get rid of Well, this, the new city council got rid of it. But yeah, it's it's a trend. It's a trend for sure. You know, so I think we're going to see some different ways that the municipalities are 
and are going to play their part in that sustainability. And, you know, if it's 25 cents or whatever, the retailer is forcing to be charged is donating that back to the environment or, you know, doing some way because rather than just keeping that money. And so, you know, I think the retailer and the consumer can start to work together so they don't feel like they're penalized per se that they have to bring this bag, but there's ways to incentivize them. Like I said, like maybe scanning a QR code to get loyalty points, extra loyalty points for bringing their reusable bag or using social media or geofencing digital reminders when you get out of your car in the grocery store or the LCBO parking lot to be like, oh, you're, are you going shopping? Don't forget your bag. Yeah. You know, things like that to start thinking them and help educating the customer and, and shifting their behavior too. And maybe um, that maybe that's the part of it that rankles a little bit is that who are we to be educated by the LCBO? I mean, honestly, they dish out, they sell alcohol. I mean, really, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it all gets a bit, I find it all gets a little rich sometimes. I get, the, I get the marketing side of it, but it, to me, it just gets a little, and I'm, and I'm, and I bring my bags too. I'm by no means someone who rails against not being able to have plastic bags. I just find sometimes these things feel like, you know, really, really like this is, you're going to dress this up as sustainability because you think it looks good good on your corporate annual report, but really like what difference will it actually make? I don't know. I'm, I'm not con- I'm not entirely convinced. Yeah. And, and ban is just seems like such a strong word. And that is the language that we're seeing. Right. And, you know, I think there could be that shift and, and not that line in the sand that says, okay, we're not buying another one. Lisa Hutchison, thank you so much. Okay. Thanks for having me. It was a historic day. We started off the day. I knew this decision was coming down today from the province of BC. So when I woke up this morning, I was surprised to see that the first big story about the RCMP today had nothing to do with Canada. In fact, it was happening at Windsor Castle, which is outside of London, um, you know, thousands of kilometers away. King Charles III was officially appointed as uh, the commissioner-in-chief of the force today, which is, you know, (laughs) what the monarch does. And it's just a reminder of how long the RCMP has been with us and how ingrained the RCMP is in Canadian culture in all ways. And we all know, I mean, many of you will have the RCMP as your police force as well. Uh, The King was even gifted a musical ride horse named Noble today. So that was sort of the historic side of the RCMP. The modern day problems for the Mounties surfaced today on this side of the Atlantic Ocean, way out here on the West Coast in BC, in uh, the Vancouver suburb of Surrey, which is a huge place in of itself, about 600,000 residents. And um, they are one of the largest, if not the largest municipality in the country that does not have its own police force. They, for a long time, they've relied on the RCMP. Now, a while back, they decided, you know, a mayor was elected on with the promise of bringing in their own police force. Now, I don't think it was particularly well done, but they moved ahead with bringing in their own municipal police force. And um, and then a new mayor came in recently and said, wait a second, we're going to keep the RCMP. So this has been a big dispute within the community itself. We won't spend too much time talking about that because it can't be of too much interest to people outside of that area. But the details are interesting because it does expose a larger problem when it comes to the Mounties and their role in community police. Uh, Again, so it's a little bit complicated, but the province looked into this and they came out today with a recommendation for Surrey. Now, this is not binding. They can't tell the municipality what to do, but they essentially said, get rid of the RCMP. Uh, Here is the public safety minister, Mike Farnham. 
The RCMP have significant recruiting challenges right now. And with 1,500 vacancies across British Columbia, we cannot afford to make it worse. The Director of Police Services report makes it clear that backtracking to the RCMP risks reducing police presence in other regions. So essentially what they're pointing to is the, is the impact it'll have on the rest of the province, because there are many communities in British Columbia that rely on the RCMP for policing. They're having, they have staffing shortages, as you mentioned, about 1,500 across this province alone or across BC alone, and that to reconstitute the RCMP in Surrey would mean having to get those police officers from somewhere, and that creates an issue, right? Now, the current council in Surrey was not happy about this today. They've come in on a mandate of bringing back the RCMP. They think it's all politics. Uh, here's what the mayor had to say, Brenda Locke. For the report, the one that I had just received 20 minutes ago after the minister started talking, it is heavily redacted. Council and I will take the time to review the Solicitor General's uh, information, uh, the one that he put forth today, and we will act in the best interest of the citizens of Surrey. So this fight is not nearly over. There's been some great coverage about this debate, this battle on CKNW, chorus, the Chorus Affiliate in Vancouver today. But we're going to focus on something a little bit different because this is an issue that is happening right across the country. It's a fight that will resonate in other jurisdictions because there is growing scrutiny of the role of the RCMP in regional policing and whether or not the force is capable of meeting the increasingly complex needs of the communities that it serves. So to help us do that is someone who knows both these issues well. Kirk Griffiths is a professor of Criminology at Simon Fraser University, which happens to be in Burnaby, a neighboring municipality, another very big one on the Lower Mainland that also has the RCMP as its police force. Uh, Kurt, thank you. Yes, actually, uh, thank you for having me. Actually, my office is at uh, Surrey campus, so I'm right in the middle of it. Oh, you're on Surrey campus. Oh, there you go. Sorry about that. So you're in Surrey so proper. Indeed. Tell me a bit about the about this decision today, because it does, although it seems like very much a municipal issue, very much a lower mainland yep. issue, it does mm-hmm. have, there'll be a lot of municipalities and communities watching this to see what happens. I think that, I think you're correct. I think while this decision, one might look at it and say, well, that's just a Surrey situation, it's isolated, what does it have to do with the role of the RCMP across Canada? Uh, we know what the historical role has been, as you've laid out. Uh, very much involved in contracting to municipal level, contracted as the provincial police service everywhere except Ontario and Quebec, of course, and, and, and parts of uh, uh, Newfoundland Labrador. Uh, and so the question is, you know, what are the implications of this? I think that if we look at it just briefly in the British Columbia context, there, the, the landscape uh, is changing. The all-party committee uh, that reported last spring uh, recommended uh, several things that I think are really important and I think that are informing these decisions that the government is making. Uh, it recommended that the RCMP be removed from contract policing municipalities altogether. It also recommended the formation of a BC Provincial Police Service, which would remove the Mounties as the Provincial Police Service. In essence, the only presence of the Mounties then under that scenario would be And it also recommended regionalization of police services in the greater Vancouver area and in southern uh, Vancouver Island. Uh, So the implications of that would be that the only presence, if that came to be, in in British Columbia, would would, the RCMP would be in a federal role. So you look next door to Alberta. Uh, In Alberta, they are considering 
bringing back the Alberta Provincial Police. Of course, British Columbia had its own provincial police service up in the early 1950s, as did the Prairie Provinces. So uh, Alberta is actively considering uh, reconstructing the uh, Alberta Provincial Police. So uh, if we look across the country, I think that these are national issues. I think because the RCMP is a national police service, uh, it has systemic issues long-standing systemic issues that that bubble up in a place like Surrey. So you've got Surrey, which is the largest municipality in Canada that didn't have its own municipal, independent municipal police service, and the detachment was chronically understaffed. And I think that other issues have risen to the forefront in these communities because when you have an RCMP detachment in your community, you will never have the police service reflect the diversity of the population that it's serving because the officers are subject to transfer policy. So officers are moved in and out of these detachments across the country, except obviously in Ontario and Quebec, at the whim uh, of the RCMP. So, for example, we know how diverse a community Syria is, for example. Well, with an independent municipal police service, you can focus on hiring diversity in your police service and knowing that those officers are going to be there for their entire careers. So, these, I think the larger systemic issues with the RCMP are playing out in Surrey. I think that the the province's movement through the all-party committee to look at a provincial police service, to look at regional policing, uh, is part of that. You can't have regional policing in the greater Vancouver region with this checkerboard pattern of Mountie Municipal, Mountie Municipal. Same in the Southern Island. So that raises a lot of interesting questions. I think these pieces of the puzzle are on the table. It'll be interesting to see how the government puts them together. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I gather that the, the appeal of having the RCMP is that for a lot of municipalities, it checks off a lot of boxes. It's inexpensive, right? Or it's less expensive well, uh, to okay. have the RCMP. Or is it, though? <laughs> or is it? Okay, well, we do a lot of work in communities uh, across the country and in, and in British Columbia as well. Community, uh, you know, frontline policing kind of research. We're working with municipal councils and mayors. The You know, the argument that the RCMP was cheaper, I think... Well, now it's not because they have a union. And so right. the pay, as, as men and women in the RCMP were chronically underpaid. So they got what they deserved, which is a fair collective agreement now. And they're paid at parity. So which is good with municipals, which is fantastic. The, the challenge is when we say the RCMP is cheaper, I would ask the question, what is the cost of not being able as I just mentioned, to have a police service that represents the diversity of the population it serves. Now, there's a cost there, but it doesn't go on an Excel spreadsheet. What's the cost of having an officer in Surrey who's from Nova Scotia who wants to go home and isn't embedded in the community and has no plans to stay? There's a cost to that that's often not considered. So those are kind of the qualitative aspects of policing that are really important. How do you do community engagement on a sustainable basis when officers are rotating through these detachments. They come, they go. And I think there, there's a cost to that. What about in Richmond, British Columbia, which is a very diverse community, uh, right. a, a very, uh, you know, substantive Asian-Canadian population, when the detachment has only five or six officers who speak or understand Mandarin or Cantonese? But there's a cost to that in terms of their ability to do community engagement. So, when, when it's said, you know, the Mounties are cheaper, well, they're not anymore that in depends. terms of salaries. <laughs> right. 
but right. it's the systemic yeah, kinds on. of things, right? It's the way the Mounties are set up. It's not the fault of the men and women. Uh, no. The men and women, uh, RCMP officers are, are fantastic, the men and women. And people often ask me, what's your read on the RCMP? And from my decades of working with them on the front lines, I would say great men and women who work in a totally dysfunctional organization. Right. <laughs> Which is that doesn't Which look after their a... best interest. Yeah. Right. Kirk Griffiths is with us, a professor of criminology at Simon Fraser University, the Surrey campus. We're talking about Surrey today. The province of B.C. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. suggested, urged Surrey to continue with its plans to uh, to create a municipal police force, an independent police force, and drop the RCMP. Uh, and it plays into a, to a story that's happening right across the country as many communities and jurisdictions are reassessing their relationship with the Mounties. Our recommendations call for transformative change. They call for collaboration. They call for leadership. They call for you to champion these recommendations so that our communities in Nova Scotia and Canada will be safer. That was uh, Michael McDonald. He was commissioned chair for the mass shooting inquiry that just took place, just ended in Nova Scotia uh, last month. And their recommendations, they came down really hard on the RCMP, and they had some sweeping recommendations. It feels like a real moment of truth right now for the Mounties in this country. Kirk Griffiths is with us. He's a professor of criminology at Simon Fraser University in Surrey. Uh, We're talking about what happened today in Surrey. There's been a battle in that community over who will be policing uh, that municipality going forward. They've created a new independent municipal police force, uh, a new city council would like to bring the RCMP back in. They're being phased out. And today the BC government came down on the side of, uh, of phasing out the RCMP. So again, lots of lots of communities across the country looking at this and what the future of community policing in the RCMP uh, could look like. Uh, Kurt, that was, I mean, I, I obviously followed that commission of inquiry pretty closely. Mm-hmm. And uh, that really put the RCMP on the spot. I mean, you'd think the change is going to have to happen pretty soon. Uh, and I'm just wondering, and you've mentioned it before, can they change? Well, I think we'll look back, and you're correct. I think we'll look back and see the mass casualty report as a tipping point. I think that, um, you know, a lot of the uh, the issues that have surrounded the Mounties, such as the toxic workplace, the harassment of women officers, over $200 million paid out already, is pretty much under the radar for most of the public. But what happened in Nova Scotia was a tragedy on so many different levels. And I think that it, it I think it did inform, uh, my opinion would be that it did inform the decision of the government in terms of saying continue on with the Surrey Police Service. So I think the reach of that commission, it's interesting that the commission went way beyond, as you suggested, their kind of mandate to look at what happened with that incident to recommending that the Mounties close the training depot. So they yes. had a big reach. And I think, again, that's part of the changing landscape that we'll see. I think the consensus is the Mounties should focus on federal policing, do it really well. And rather than being stretched so thin across the country, the men and women and the impact that has on the frontline officers. So you're correct. The mass casualty report is impacting far beyond the Nova Scotia and the Maritimes. I mean, one of the things that struck me about Surrey, which is a story I didn't follow particularly closely, but closely over time, was that if, if, if municipalities and communities are going to make a transition, they need to have a plan, though. And it struck me that perhaps Correct. Surrey's plan wasn't quite quite up to scratch. 
Well, you know, I think it's it's interesting. I'm, uh, you know, uh, full admission. I was involved in the development of the transition plan under Mr. Justice Opal. There were yes. there were representatives yes. from. I was asked to represent the municipality, and there were representatives from the provincial go- uh, from the uh, provincial government. And that we put it. It was a feasibility study that say, can this be done? And there was a blueprint that was set out. It's online that says, here's how to proceed with this. It wasn't followed for a variety of reasons, um, and, and part of it was part of it was the RCMP. Um, it's their largest detachment in Canada. I think that it is a flagship uh, detachment for them. I think that if we speak about organizational egos, all organizations have them. Um, the plan wasn't followed. Uh, for example, as soon as the new chief constable of Surrey was appointed by the new newly formed police board, which appoints the constable, hires the constable, there was to be joint command structure of the emerging police service during the transition. That never happened. So the plan wasn't followed for a variety of reasons. There was a plan. I get it. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, and... But no one said it would be easy. It's 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 a large detachment. Uh, I think there are concerns. Uh, but you know, is there going to be a domino effect now, or are other communities going to, you know, start you know considering this? I would point out that the original decision to give the two-year notice to the provincial government under the policing agreement that they want to replace the RCMP was a seven-to-nothing vote by council. Yeah. The the subsequent vote was, I believe, five to four. So. Then we get into the politicization of the whole thing, which is what's happened. And that's unfortunate because policing shouldn't be politicized, right? And no matter what side you're on, it, it shouldn't yeah. be politicized and fought out in public like this. And under, I think it undermines public confidence, you know. I think regardless of, again, what your particular view is, whether the Mountie should stay or go, it's, these battles being fought out in public are, is not healthy uh, no. and should have been avoided. I agree. And the Mass Commission inquiry made it very clear they thought it was too there was too much politics going on even there too, and they had to you know this was one of the big problems that the RCMP had was a centralized system and, and right. too political, and, and that that had to be changed. I, I quick, quickly, what what next year? I, I guess now we wait to see what Surrey decides to do with this. I mean, there are obviously incentives well, to continue on the path with a municipal police force, but we don't know. Well, I mean, I think if you read between the lines, and if you read the lines, for example, the, the provincial government has said, if you're going to keep the Mounties, there's seven non-negotiable uh, conditions here, one of which yeah. you cannot staff up Surrey Detachment by taking officers out of Prince George, which is itself understaffed, or out of Penticton, which is understaffed, or out of Burnaby, which is understaffed. So I think the seven conditions can't be met. <laughs> just because right now the Mounties are having trouble with their recruiting and they're chronically understaffed. There's 9% hard vacancies, but the soft vacancies of officers that are off on stress leave runs 20%. So it's really more than 9%. 9% is the hard vacancy. Uh, soft vacancies are much higher. So, um, right. so I think it's going to be challenging. Sir, to mid- yeah. Yeah. Yep. So. Uh, Kurt Griffiths, we run out of time, but we'll keep we'll keep post on this one because you're right. This has sure. implications far beyond the borders of where you are tonight in Surrey. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Yeah, thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Let's get to something that happened late yesterday. It's it's kind of a big deal, right? The con- it's a controversial government bill, federal bill, to overhaul the Canadian broadcasting laws to regulate streaming surfaces. It passed its final hurdle last uh, last night in the Senate. And it's going to be law. That's that's what's going to happen. After years of debate, um, 
the Bill C-11, also known as the Online Streaming Act, is uh, is coming our way. And here's what it does. It makes changes to the Broadcasting Act, which was high time. It uh, you know was last changed back in the early 90s, so it's been far too long. It requires streaming services such as Netflix and Spotify to pay to support Canadian media content like music and TV shows, right? So far, so good. It also requires the platforms to perform, to promote Canadian content. Starts to get a little trickier there, but okay, they're trying to bring all those things that we were used to when we were young about Canadian content on the radio and on TV into the modern world, right? Not an easy thing to do, uh, but they're doing it anyway. It also says online undertakings shall clearly promote and recommend Canadian programming in both official languages as well as Indigenous languages. And then it sort of gets into creator content, which is a bit of a bone of contention. Here's Global Sarah off. What's up, how's it going? Welcome back to the Matt Moore YouTube channel. For over 15 years, he's been making a full-time career of it, capitalizing on a fast-changing appetite for media consumption. I've been in the uh, the content creation world since 2008. But this could be one of the biggest shakeups in that online streaming world. Under Bill C-11, Canadian regulators will now mandate providers like YouTube, TikTok, and Netflix to promote and grow Canadian content. It's very tricky to know puppeteering they're able to do with the algorithm like how much they're able to influence that because the algorithm is very much based on like the individual in a recent campaign against c11 youtube suggested pushing content to users based on origin rather than viewing preferences could have negative impacts on canadian content 90 percent of which it says is consumed outside of canada Be less likely to like them or maybe they would uh, dislike them or watch them a lot less and so that negative feedback that we collect can actually have a ripple through the system while entertainment unions have been yeah, that was Global Sarah often. And that gives you an idea of what's at stake here, right? I mean, uh, when it comes to sort of getting con- getting the big streaming platforms to promote Canadian content and pour more money into them, okay. Uh, but when it comes to regulating content creators like people who have YouTube channels and so on, then it starts to get tricky. The opposition, the Conservatives, of course, calling this censorship. The government's calling this a great move. We wanted to get behind the politics and find out what this actually means, what it means for you. And to do that with us is Michael Geist. He's Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law and a professor of law at the University of Ottawa. He follows this topic very closely. Michael, thank you. Welcome back. Oh, thanks so much for having me again. Uh, so here we are. It's arrived. Um, it is about to become legislation. I mean, it's all said and done. Modernizing the Broadcasting Act seems like a, a decent idea, given all that's changed over the past few decades. But is this a good piece of legislation or not? Well, I think there's some real problems with it, and there were opportunities to fix it that for whatever reason, it's a little inexplicable, to be honest, the the government chose not to take. And you're right. Uh, you know, the, the legislation is is older legislation, certainly predates some of the kind of modern technologies that we see. And, you know, had the government stuck to sort of a, a nice perspective that said, hey, we want to bring the Internet equivalent of the large broadcasters, the Netflix and Disney's into the system and find appropriate ways to regulate some of their activities or their contributions. I don't know it would have been particularly controversial. In fact, that's where they started, and it wasn't particularly controversial. But once they opened up the Pandora's box of of regulating user content, suddenly what would have been a slam dunk took about two and a half years to finally get passed. Yeah, because I I think Canadians would accept that we want to level the playing field a little bit, encourage Canadian content, make sure that big organizations like Netflix and so on are part of that if if Canadian broadcasters have to be part of it. Um, Where did they go wrong then? Where where did they open this Pandora's box and why? Right. So, you know, and and I would note that I think there is still there still would be and should be a, a pretty 
fulsome debate around the Netflixes and Disney's. It's, you know, there's often talk of a level playing field. Some of those companies are actually some of the biggest investors already in Canada right, right. now, and they don't enjoy some of the benefits that broadcasters have, but we can park that to the side because, you know, that never really became a focal point of the debate. The debate really became when the government removed what had been an exception in the bill. So the government had started life with this legislation, actually when it was even just predating C-11, when it was C-10, mm-hmm. saying that they would exclude users and their content. And then fairly late in the process of that of the prior bill, they removed one of those exceptions and put their content squarely within in scope of potential CRTC regulation. And that sparked a lot of concern. It, it was sufficient to delay the bill, really, with a lot of debate such that it didn't pass. There was an election call, and so the bill died. And when they brought it back, new minister, this time Pablo Rodriguez, they said they fixed it. And yet anyone taking the time to read it or study the issue found that that simply wasn't the case. So what is the issue here then with content creators in this country? What could this mean uh, for them? Because we're seeing words, you know, like censorship being thrown out there all of a sudden by specifically by the conservatives. But it seems there's legitimate concerns about what exactly this could mean for people creating content in this country. Yeah, right. No, listen, uh, you do see that language thrown out there. It's not a word that I've tended to use with this legislation. And my view is that claims that this legislation limits what people can say online is is an exaggeration. That's not the case for this legislation. But this legislation could have an impact on people's ability to be heard. And I think that is a a part of expression and certainly is a is a really important part of the overall equation. And the reason for that is the CRTC is now empowered to establish regulations, including for some user content. That's the sort of contents of videos or music that that might appear on a TikTok or a YouTube. And as part of that could effectively prioritize certain content, might have the effect of deprioritizing other kinds of content. An example I saw someone raising today was that some of the Quebec-based Groups say that they don't think that users in Quebec are listening to enough Quebec music. They would like the CRTC to effectively require these services to ensure that people's feeds have more of this content. In the case of YouTube, they might say that let's identify what counts as Canadian in a user context and let's prioritize that. So the algorithm starts spitting out more of that content. The effect, of course, is to potentially deprioritize other kinds of content. And all of this raises the question as to whether or not it's the CRTC that should be making decisions about what people see in personalized feeds that are supposedly there to reflect their interests. Yeah, I mean, the whole issue of algorithms is a complex and complicated one. But in this case, the CRTC doesn't have a fantastic track record at this stuff necessarily, does it? No, I don't think it does. I don't think it has a lot of the expertise on these issues. Yeah, I know there's a great deal of of skepticism and at times concerns about Google or TikTok and saying, you know, well, would we be happier if they're making those choices? And I must admit, I think the answer is yes. You know, if they overstep and act in any competitive fashion or abuse people's privacy, real concerns that I think we need to ensure we've got effective laws to deal with. But if it is simply, as we know it is, the goal of these companies to keep people on their platforms for as long as possible by serving up content that they're likely to want to watch, they've got every incentive to ensure that people watch the content they want to watch. And so if people want Canadian content, as many groups insist they do, There are incentives for these companies to ensure that it appears in people's feeds. And the idea that bureaucrats in Gatineau or CRTC commissioners, in a sense, know better 
and can basically force these companies to begin to alter these feeds so that there are certain broader public policy purposes that are reflected in people's individual feeds, I think leave people, many people, very uncomfortable. Yeah, and it feels like it's destined to fail as well. I wanted to touch a bit on what, something that you brought up that I found really interesting is that you know, there was a lot of input from a lot of different people here. I mean, there's certainly those who support this uh, C11 wholeheartedly, but there was a lot of people out there sort of trying to suggest some compromise here. And it felt like as the, the government went through the process of this particular piece of legislation, when it was reborn as C11, weren't interested in compromising at all. In fact, they just basically said, here's the legislation and this is what it's going to look like. And that that struck me as odd considering this is usually a forum for a good debate. I mean, this is something we should be debating right across the country, whatever your political leadings are. To me, it was more than odd. It was exceptionally frustrating and discouraging because, you know, politics often involves some amount of compromise on legislation. And in this case, you did have the minister appearing before the Senate trying to make the case that these user content concerns were overstated. It was not an issue. And yet the Senate wasn't buying what he was selling. That one they did hear from former chair of the CRTC, from many other experts, they were convinced there was a problem. And they came up with a proposed amendment that scoped the user content out, but kept in some of the kinds of content that the minister himself had said he wanted to ensure would be subject to some of these rules. And yet, when it went back to the House, after having been passed by a wide margin in the Senate, we ended up with the government saying no. And in fact, the Heritage Minister Rodriguez seemed to suggest that he would reject anything that made real changes to this legislation. And the irony of, on the one hand, congratulating the Senate for some of the most extensive discussions on any bill uh, that, that we've seen. And on the other hand, saying that he wasn't interested in anything that the Senate actually did coming out of those hearings, if it resulted in any changes, is just exceptionally frustrating, particularly for a government that, that came to power on the back of talking about transparency and public consultation. Michael Geist is with us. He's Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law and a professor of law at the University of Ottawa. We're talking about Bill C-11. It's a controversial bill that was that overhauls the Canadian broadcasting legal framework to regulate streaming services. And it is now, it passed its final hurdle last night. It will be, it will receive, um, it's about to become law. It soon will be law. And after years of debate, it got its approval, but there are real concerns about it, not because it may on the side of, of necessarily, you know, getting platforms like Netflix and Disney and Prime and so on to do more for Canadian content, but by, by some of the other stuff that's in there that's a little bit more nebulous and potentially more destructive. Michael Geist is with us, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law and a Professor of Law at the University of Ottawa. We're talking about Bill C-11, which became law, a very controversial bill that really overhauls Canadian broadcasting laws to regulate streaming services, but has some Easter eggs, and that's probably the wrong word, that are of real concern about regulating uh, user content as well. So, you know, stuff like YouTube videos and TikTok and so on and so forth. Michael, will, will the average user notice these changes fast or are we going to sort of, is this going to become an issue when the rubber hits the road, so to speak? Well, no, they're not going to notice anything fast because there is nothing fast about how this legislation is going to be implemented. Right. The The next thing, the next step is for the government to issue a, a draft policy direction where they will provide guidance to the CRTC about how they want certain provisions interpreted. That alone highlights just how much uncertainty comes out of this legislation. You know, the fact that we went through two and a half years of debate and people still don't know what the legislation may actually mean in certain circumstances. And so the government says, well, now we'll actually tell you what we think it should mean. 
But once they complete that process, and we can expect that to be done probably by the summer, the CRTC will, I guess, spring into action. This could take years in terms of CRTC hearings, decisions, because there's an awful lot to be decided, including some of these user content issues, but it goes even well, well beyond just that. One of the things that will happen, though, during that period is that I think many digital creators, some of the users are going to have to show up and make their case before the CRTC, which to me highlights the fallacy of what Pablo Rodriguez continuously and the government continuously said was they said, you know, platforms are in, users are out. If users really are out, out in terms of not showing up. The field is basically left just to those who do show up and the risk of having their content regulated in different ways really increases because CRTC ultimately makes those decisions based on the evidentiary record. You don't show up, you're not in the record. When we look at the politics of this, because of course the politics always comes in, the conservatives are already saying if elected, they would scrap it. What should individual Canadians be cognizant of when we hear words like censorship or we hear the, hear the government lauding this as some remarkable piece of legislation and the official opposition essentially calling it draconian? I'm putting words in their mouth, but you know, there's going to be a lot of politics around this. What would you like Canadians to keep in mind when listening to this debate, which gets awfully noisy, awfully fast? I think that's true. And, and, you know, and and both sides are quick to accuse the other side of of engaging in misinformation and the like. And it has been a, a discouraging debate in certain respects, especially of late, where I think that there are real problems with this bill. And sometimes they're obscured by the claims on the one end of censorship and claims on the other hand uh, that there's you know absolutely nothing to see here and that anybody that says otherwise is is engaging in misinformation. I mean, the, both of those statements at the end of the day are factually wrong. It's unfortunate that particularly on the government side at the House of Commons that uh, we didn't you know, the government either was both not responsive to those concerns and for whatever reason, sort of dug in their heels. And, you know, I think that I think that's just ultimately bad policymaking. And there are, as I say, real risks here. And uh, the CRTC will make decisions based on what it, when it does here from that record. And, you know, it's an unlevel playing field. It's ironic that in a bill that started life saying that we're trying to level the playing field, I think it ends its legislative journey by creating a new unlevel playing field, one in which those that are accustomed to CRTC processes that have the resources to do it. They're the ones that figure they can use this process and that knowledge to make bank. Whereas many others that, you know, never, never have never appeared before the CRTC have had no interest or reason to appear before the CRTC suddenly are thrust into this uh, because if they don't, there are real risks to their livelihood and the, the way in which their cultural sector operates. Michael Geist, as always, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. Our next topic is a really interesting one. It fits into a bunch of things we've been talking about of late, but here is a taste. Women speaking to the Guardian newspaper about choosing not to have kids. The world perceives child-free women in the most negative light possible. I think it's not a need for women anymore. We don't need to have children. We we find that our own happiness is more important, our own mental health is more important. We have been called selfish. We've been called narcissists, which is kind of strange. That were That is women speaking to the Guardian newspaper about uh, the decision not to have children. And we often think, I mean, these days, and this comes came up because a few weeks ago we did a segment on Japan's 
uh, ever falling birth rate and how the country is sort of struggling to figure out what to do. They don't have a lot of immigration. Birth rate is well below replacement. And essentially, the whole population is getting very, very old and there's no new generation to replace it. Um, and we often think of birth rates and the reluctance to have kids as kind of a modern phenomenon, right? It's said that sort of millennials invented the idea of not having kids. But my next guest, a historian of gender and other other matters, explores this relationship between womanhood, womanhood and motherhood and finds that history is full of women without kids, some who chose uh, childless lives, others who wanted children but did, never had them, and others, apparently the vast majority, uh, then and now, who fall somewhere in between the, all those different uh, categorizations that we tend to put people in. Um, this is not a binary choice, is what she's trying to say. The book itself is based on her own experiences. Peggy O'Donnell Heffington shows that many of the reasons women are not having kids today are ones they share with women in the past, a lack of support, their jobs or finances, environmental concerns, infertility, the desire to live different kinds of lives. And all these things have come up in the context of places such as Japan, uh, Canada, obviously, and, and other parts of the world where birth rates have fallen dramatically in the last half century or so. What she points out, though, is understanding the history, understanding that it's not new, how normal it's always been, uh, and how hard societies work to make it seem abnormal is the key here. And to explain why, joining me now is Peggy O'Donnell Heffington. She's an instructional professor of history at the University of Chicago, and her book is called Without Children, The Long History of Not Being a Mother. Peggy, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me a bit about, I mean, this is a, a subject that, that crosses, I mean, cultures and generations and millennia, centuries and millennia. Tell me a bit about your inspiration for it. Why did you feel like this was the time to tackle this topic from your perspective? Sure, yeah. The inspiration for the book honestly came a bit from my own experience. Um, I think, you know, as a, as a culture, as, as a society, we talk about not having children as as this very clean choice that, you know, you either like children so you have them or you don't want children so you don't have them and in my own experience it felt a lot more complicated than that there were there were sort of lots of factors that that i found were playing into my own reproductive decisions and that i saw playing into people's reproductive decisions around me and so then of course being a historian that gets me thinking you know has it always been this complicated and the answer is yes yes it has always been this complicated it it does i mean obviously not being able to um not being able to completely identify but it always has felt looking in from the outside like it's presented as a binary choice yes or no that's it you know you choose and i i mean i think we all know from experience as you pointed out that it is far more complicated than that and i was surprised to learn that that's true throughout history that's this isn't new this isn't a new discussion that we're having it's one that's been discussed in ways different ways shapes and forms for a very long time yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I that I really wanted to establish with the book was that there have always been women without children, which sounds really simple and basic, but actually, you know, the way we the way we talk about not having children today, it sort of gets cast as as this thing, you know, millennials have invented or that that young people today are doing that is sort of weird and an aberration. But people have not been having children for a very long time, and one of them were interesting things I found in, in researching the book was that their reasons in the past for not having children aren't that different from our own. How so? You know, when surveys ask women today why they're not having children, their answers are pretty consistent. And they, they say, you know, I don't have enough money. I don't have the social support. My job gets in the way. You know, I'm worried about the future of the environment or I just don't want them. And if you look 
the past, these were some of the same reasons that, that women didn't have children in the past. So they didn't have enough money. They didn't feel like they could economically support another, another person. They lacked social support. For one example, um, historians looked at birth records of French colonists to Canada in, in the, the 17th and 18th centuries, mm-hmm. and they were able to show that the further a woman moved from her family of origin and the community that supported her as a child, the fewer children she was likely to have. And I think that's just sort of indicative of how important social support is in sort of being able to have children. They also worried about the future of the environment. You know, could their natural environment support another person? Yeah. I, and one of the things I found interesting, too, was that your description of the nuclear family as being, I mean, we think of the nuclear family as almost being sacrosanct now, but how it wasn't. Uh, children were raised, you know, the whole knowledge of it takes the whole term of it takes a village to raise a child seems quite quaint now, sort of slogany. But it was true centuries ago. It's actually what happened. Yeah, absolutely. The sociologist Patricia Hill Collins has pointed out that, that the the nuclear family, like the biological unit of the mother and father and their biological offspring, um, sort of as a self-contained unit, she's pointed out that that's not only the most unusual way of parenting in the world, it's also the most stressful way of parenting in the world. Um, and we don't have to look that far back in, you know, in European or, or um, North American history. And certainly we don't have to look very far around the world to find communities that, that sort of consider the, the family a much more flexible thing. If you look at the American colonies, for example, people raised their children in a more collective way. They passed in and, e- in and out of each other's houses. They, they loved each other's kids. They disciplined each other's kids. They, they even took on primary parenting responsibilities for children that weren't biologically theirs. And so, so it was only in the 19th century that this, this sort of like isolation of the nuclear family becomes not only the ideal, but understood to be the only way a family could be could be made. Um, and I think that has two effects. On, on the one hand, it, it isolates parents and mothers in particular, because it means that they are then responsible for fully, you know, caring for their children alone. And it really isolates people without children who sort of don't get to participate anymore in, in raising the next generation. Because again, as you've pointed out, there are lots of ways in the past that women without, women without kids have raised kids, so to speak. You mentioned one teacher in Chicago. There's a plaque on a park bench, I think, to her, um, that there are uh, there's a long history of women without children being very much part of the child rearing process. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, this park bench, I run by it most days. It's, it's right on Lake Michigan, looking out over the water. Um, and there's a little plaque on it that's, that's dedicated to a woman named Nancy Olivi, um, who was a Chicago public schools teacher. And it says, Nancy Olivi raised 10,000 kids. She was a teacher. And in that little plaque, I, you know, I stop and stretch there many days. In that little pa- plaque, I think there's a suggestion that if we could we could sort of expand what it means to mother, what it means to care for children, what it means to raise children, that it's not just sort of a biological thing that, you know, if you have children, you are responsible for raising them alone. And if you don't have children, you don't get to participate. But it's, it's sort of, you know, it challenges us to think about what care could look like if we expanded the definition of what it means to mother. Peggy O'Donnell Hevington is an instructional professor of history at the University of Chicago and author of Without Children, The Long History of Not Being a Mother, which looks very much into the uh, the long story of women who do not have kids and how they're viewed by society, how they're viewed by other women, for instance. Why are we that way? What could improve 
if we didn't look at it as a binary choice. Um, Peg, it always interests me. Motivation always interests me. And it feels like this idea of the of you know mums versus not mums has very much been imposed on women for a very long time. And did you look into that? And what reasons did you come up with as to why that persists? Yeah, absolutely. So I started the book with the with the assumption that that the the divide between mothers and non-mothers was a real thing, that that we were sort of different on an identity level, on a social level, because it feels real. But if you look back in the past, and not even that far in the past, this this distinction between mothers and not mothers sort of disappears. As we were talking about before, even in the uh, the American colonies two centuries ago, um, communal ways of child rearing were were much more common, and so across the 19th century, motherhood became increasingly raised up as the ideal. Um, I'm speaking specifically to the United States, but I think it could apply, you know, more broadly in in Western Europe and, and North America. Um, motherhood increasingly is held up as this ideal thing that women are supposed to do, their their sort of primary way of participating in the newly founded United States. It's how they're supposed to be a citizen. And at the same time, the converse becomes true, that if if you are not having children, you are you're not only sort of failing as a woman, but you're also failing as a citizen, right? And and so this this creates, you know, a divide that you have, you know, the correct way to be a woman, and then you have people doing something deviant, people doing something bad, people sort of shirking their citizenship duties. Um, and I think we are left with this this sense that um that there's something very different about us when um history suggests that there there really doesn't you know, that that doesn't need to be the case. And in fact, it was something that was imposed upon women. Yeah, I think one of the terms that you brought up are we are we are on different paths, but on the same road. Uh, what yeah. what is the what is the impact been then? I mean, we see it today. So here we are having this conversation. I was talking to you a bit before we started about Japan and how we were looking at their birth rates have plummeted. South Korea's birth rate set a new record low this year. There is concern amongst policymakers in trying to encourage women who want to have children to have them. Right. But but we also know that a lot of the problems that are in place have nothing to do with with a binary choice. It's about a myriad of things that you've discussed, like financial situation, opportunity, support, and so forth. If you look at the impact of that of that us versus them thing that has been set up, um, what has it been, and how do you change it? Yeah, I mean one of one of the final sort of revelations I had in the process of researching this book was realizing that this some of the same factors that make parenting hard today, like it's expensive, like lack of social support, like the fact that our jobs come home with us in our pockets and sort of demand our attention all the time, um, like fear of the future. And I said, I had this sort of like revelatory moment where I realized like, oh, we are all responding to the same set of challenges. We're we're responding to them in slightly different ways. But that made me realize we are sort of more connected, more similar than we are divided. Um, And and so so that really shifted how I was thinking about the book rather than as sort of an us versus them. It's like we are all in this together. We are all trying to, to sort of build the best possible lives that we can. And I think remembering this history of how we got to this place is incredibly important because like I was saying earlier, um, the the way we, we conceive of family right now isolates people who have children into that sort of very difficult situation of parenting their children's, children completely alone. And it isolates people who don't have children of their own, you know, from, from participating and helping to raise them. Um, this isn't the way things have always been. We can look to the past and, and find find a model where parents had more help 
and people without children didn't feel so isolated. And what do you say then, given the, the and this is a, it's hard to encapsulate everything you've written yeah. and looked into, but what do you say to to folks out there who are interested in this topic the next time they, you know, they talk about motherhood, or they talk about women in motherhood, men too. I mean, we're all part of this conversation, right? Uh, when you walk away from this book, what is what is the overriding thing that you'd like to see change? Well, I think I would like to to bring more nuance into the conversation. I mean, my joke with my students is that being a historian, the answer to everything is that it's complicated. Um, I think that on the one hand, it is is sort of a wonderful thing that we live in a world where women feel like they have more options of how they want to live their lives and and that they're sort of increasingly choosing those options. On the other hand, um, in the United States anyway, there's... there's, um, there's a big gap between the number of children women say they want, which is three, and the number of children, the average number of children women are having, which is 1.7. And so I think, I think in that gap, we see a lot of, you know, people not having children because it is difficult to in the world that we've built. Um, and so, so I want to, to hold space for both, you know, valuing the, the freedom to, to choose a whole variety of different kinds of lives, but also recognize that we've, we've created a world where we're not having children as sort of increasingly appealing option. And just in your case too, I know that, um, that, that you, you, you embody that you embody the complexities of, of those, yeah. not even, I wouldn't even call it a decision, but of that reality. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was this was in part why I, why I came to the book because it it just never I I didn't feel like I belonged in sort of the joyfully child free camp where I had I had chosen a life without children. Um, for me, it was you know the the lots of other factors sort of helped determine the range of reproductive options that that felt like they were available to me. Um, and and it was incredibly comforting for me to look back in in the past and realize, you know, I'm, I'm not alone. People have not had children for a whole variety of different reasons for a very, very long time. I guess if you, if you look to the future and we look at countries like, I mean, a lot of policymakers are looking at these issues. I think of China or, or Japan or South Korea or Canada, or the U.S., and they're looking, thinking, how can we allow it? How can we create an environment whereby women would, would want, women who want kids can have them? And it feels like we yeah. need to have this conversation to get there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it is both as simple and as deeply complicated as rethinking how we we approach family, like like reconsidering what we mean by family. Um, thinking, you know, can we expand family beyond the 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 nuclear family that sort of isolates and puts so much pressure on parents? Um, can we? reconsider how we think about caring for the next generation. I mean, this, this requires sort of all of us to broaden our understanding of, of who we're responsible to um, and who we can help care for. Um, and so, so that's a really easy thing to say. It's a really, really hard thing to, to do in practice. Well, Peggy O'Donnell, Heffington, thank you so much for your time and your perspective on this. The book is called Without Children, The Long History of Not Being a Mother. You know, it's always interesting when you look at 
the problems that we have and how other countries are tackling them. So, you know, during the pandemic, I think we were taught a very sad and very critical lesson about why we have to improve the way we care for our aging population. The demographics, just to remind you, are jarring. Older Canadians represent the fastest growing demographic in the country. Uh, in 2019, approximately one in six were over 65. By 2035, which don't forget is only 12 years away, one in four Canadians will be over 65 years of age. And meeting the evolving needs of that population is proven to be a real challenge. I mean, everyone has to play a role. Obviously, healthcare is provincial, but in municipalities, provinces, the feds, everyone needs to jump in and get uh, and and try to make this work. And the patchwork of system of care that we have, uh, we've been slow to react. We've been caught in an endless cycle of playing catch up. And we saw during the pandemic just how horrific it can be if we don't put taking care of our aging population, if we don't make it a real priority. Now, we don't. It, this isn't a problem that exists in a vacuum. There are lots of other countries out there that have similar challenges, and one of them that happens to have very similar demographics is Australia. Now, in March of 2021, Australia released a landmark Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety. In other words, they had a big look into this that took for th- took three years. They put out final recommendations. So, in some ways, even though their system is quite different, they're kind of ahead of the curve on this one. So. That leads to the question, what can we learn from Australia? Should we, we should be learning from each other in all this, right? Well, the National Institute on Aging, which is a great organization, has dug into the issue to dissect how the Australian system works and what lessons we can draw from it. Dr. Anna Gross is one of the authors of the report. She's a junior research fellow at the National Institute on Aging in, at Toronto's Metropolitan University. And she's also a geriatric medicine research fellow at U of T. And she joins me now. Dr. Gross, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. This has been one of those issues that uh, that seems so huge to, to to deal with because we've been talking about it for so long. But the pandemic really laid bare the sort of challenges Canada faces when it comes to our aging population. What did you set out to find in this example by looking at other countries and what they've been doing? Yeah, the as you said, the global population is aging and countries all over the world are now facing the challenge of how they can best care for growing numbers of increasingly more diverse and often complex older adults. And Canada and Australia are quite similar in this regard. They have a comparable life expectancy. They have a comparable proportion of their populations that are 65 years or older. Uh, and they both have publicly funded healthcare and long-term care systems. So this report was really designed to investigate how Australia is caring for its ageing populations in the hope that there might be some insights and take-home points uh, that Canada consider when they're designing their policies and responses to this really global issue. Yeah, I was really struck by how similar uh, our statistics are. I mean, the population age 65 plus is 19% here, 172 in Australia. 85 plus is 2.3% here, 2.1% in Australia. So very similar situations, albeit quite different systems, right? Yeah, that's correct. So in Australia, we have a single national long-term care system. So it doesn't matter which state or territory you live in, you access the same federal government-run long-term care system. Whereas in Canada, there tends to be a different system for every province and territory, essentially meaning there's 14 different long-term care systems, each with their own policies and procedures and funding models. So what did you set out to find when it came to, because I know Australia has been taking a good look at how this system works in recent years, even pre-pandemic, and that that work wrapped up. Uh, But what were you hoping to find within the Australian system that could apply here, given the differences between sort of a federal system and a provincially mandated system? 
Yeah, so there are obviously some differences that we can't change, like the centralised government of Australia's system compared with Canada's more distributed governance. But there were some take-home points that we did discover that uh, Canada could potentially consider when they're uh, looking to reform their system over the coming years. So one of the, the key things that Australia does reasonably well is it publishes online in a fairly accessible format uh, all of the different long-term care and uh, to a lesser extent, healthcare fees that older adults might expect to pay. The co-payments for healthcare services, for medications, for long-term care homes uh, and for home care services can all be found on government websites in Australia, whereas this information is actually quite difficult to find when you try to look for it in Canada, I guess partly because each province and territory has its own system and therefore its own fee structure. But older Australians have a relatively good idea of how much long-term care and many healthcare services are going to cost them as they age, which means that they can be perhaps a little bit more financially prepared for retirement. Whereas I know this is a different story in Canada where lots of people struggle to pay for long-term care services uh, as they age. I, I guess that does leave us um, a bit blind to what lies ahead often here when it comes to the reality of what these things do cost. And that kind of information would be very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another thing that Australia does reasonably well, and although it's not perfect, is that we have a central point of access for our long-term care services. So there's a website and television-based service called My Age Care, Older Australians, their caregivers, their families can jump online on this website and they can see what long-term care services are available, what their likely co-payment is going to be, uh, who the service providers are in their area, and more recently, they even have star ratings for the different service providers. So people have some kind of indication about the quality um, of, of service that might be available to them. And I don't think that really exists, at least to the same extent in Canada, although having there be 14 different systems, it's hard to, to say for sure whether perhaps some provinces and territories are doing this well. What else? I mean, I know that Australia's system isn't perfect, uh, or they wouldn't have spent three years diving into what, <laughs> what, what is working and what isn't working, but uh, what, are some of the, what are some of the issues that we both have? What are some of the problems that we both face? And, and how far ahead is Australia in trying to, ch- to, to tackle them? Yeah, so I think in both Canada and Australia, there needs to be more of a focus on caring for older people in their own homes as they age. Particularly in Australia, there's been a really strong historical focus on institutionalised care in long-term care homes. And we see that reflected in some of our numbers. So, for example, 4% of the Australian population aged 65 years and older live in a long-term care home. And this number jumps to 21% when we look at those 85 years and older, compared to only 16% of Canadians who are 85 years and older living in long-term care homes. And numerous different studies and sources have shown that older people in Australia and Canada both want to live at home in their own homes for as long as possible. And we really should be supporting them to do this to the best of our abilities by investing in more services that can come into people's homes uh, and help them to live there and live a high quality of life in their own home rather than uh, the historical default position of arranging a nursing home care placement when uh, their care needs get too great. So investing more money and more resources into home care over long-term home care is something that both countries should, should be focusing on in the future. The long-term care workforce, both in Canada and Australia, 
has historically been underpaid and undersupported. And these are the people that are doing the, the vast majority of the face-to-face daily care. And we really need to invest in our long-term care workforces to make them sustainable into the future. And in a similar vein, we also need to better support our unpaid caregivers. So often family members or friends that go into the home or into long-term care homes and provide one-on-one support for our older adults. They need to be better supported to continue to do this because our both, both the long-term care systems in Australia and Canada are really quite heavily reliant on their help. And we know that they are at a greater risk of um, a number of adverse outcomes by virtue of their caring role, and we need to do more to recognise and support them in this. Dr. Anna Grassi is with us this half hour. She's a junior research fellow at the National Institute on Aging at Toronto Metropolitan University. We're talking about a study they've just done, that she's just done, uh, along with others, which compares, which looks at Australia's system when it comes to uh, dealing with an aging population. Australia has many of the same demographic uh, realities that Canada now faces and has also gone through a process. They, in fact, in March of 2021, a a landmark Royal Commission released uh, its report on aged care quality and safety. Dr. Anna Grassi is with us. Uh, She's a junior research fellow at the National Institute on Aging at Toronto Metropolitan University. We're talking about a study that she's just uh, completed along with others, looking at what Australia is doing to deal with an aging population as well. We have very similar demographics, as it turns out, and very similar issues. We have slightly separate systems when it comes to to aging populations. Australia's is very centralized. Canada, of course, has a very fragmented healthcare system uh, right across the country. We certainly learned that during the pandemic when it came to long-term care homes and so on. Did the pandemic create the kind of reckoning in Australia that, that we feel like has been created here in Canada as well, sort of an urgency around this issue that perhaps we should have been more alive to earlier than a few years back? Absolutely. The COVID-19 pandemic had a pretty devastating effect uh, on our older populations in Australia, particularly those in long-term care homes um, who had an increased mortality rate and we also saw them face prolonged periods of isolation. But unlike Canada, where this was you know, a, a massive thing and shone a huge spotlight on long-term care In Australia, that spotlight had already been going in light of the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety, which was sparked following several reports of substandard long-term care uh, and took place and and finished just at the start of the pandemic in 2021. And that really uh, shone light onto several inadequacies in the Australian system and prompted a whole range of reforms that are currently in progress in Australia with regard to long-term care. I guess as Canada moves ahead with this as well, and again, we've talked uh, at at length about the idea that it's a much more fragmented system here with the territories, the provinces, the federal government. Uh, But clearly, clearly there are things we can learn from the Australian experience, considering they've they've already looked into this very pressing issue of how to reform and improve long-term care. Yeah, so the reforms are still in progress, and we haven't seen... um, really many revolutionary changes happen in the two years since the Commission has delivered their report on long-term care. But some of the things that are in the pipeline and that will hopefully change the experience for older Australians is re-looking at the way we do um, and deliver our home care services. At the moment, there are two um, home care services available, one for those requiring lower level entry level support and then one that delivers a higher level of support to people who need more help. 
those are the ones that specifically in Australia mentioned it earlier, those are the ones who often then end up in long-term care. Yeah, absolutely. And we have seen that sometimes it is faster for people to be admitted to a long-term care home than it is for them to get a home care package, which is really quite terrible when their preference is to to stay at home. So as part of the response to the Royal Commission, there's currently uh, work underway to review how we deliver home, home care to older Australians and to create one unifying process that is easier to access, provides more comprehensive support with uh, shorter waiting times so that we can keep people in their homes for as long as possible. And I think that sort of approach would be something that older Canadians would benefit from too, having a real focus on easily accessible, comprehensive home care that should be the first line before we go exploring care in long-term care homes. How would you hope that this report is received? Again, because you pointed out that perhaps one of the main issues in this country is the fragmentation, because in Australia, you can move ahead with reform and do it right across the board, whereas here, there's always a lot of negotiation. I mean, you know both systems inside out at this point. Uh, what should we walk away with then from this report, do you think? Yeah, it is tricky when you do have um, such a fragmented system and so many different people making decisions about long-term care. I think having a national approach and prioritisation of this issue um, and holding the, the individual provinces and territories into account to make sure that they are providing um, easily accessible and appropriate care for all Canadians, like we have the commitment in Australia now, would be a good first step. And then really making it a user-friendly system. So I mentioned before having the transparent fee structures, having an easy uh, method of access, um, and these things could all be done at the individual province level within the current system in Canada uh, just to create more transparent and easily accessible care. Dr. Grassi, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. 